before we think about the story that Kathy just read, I want to share a little bit of my heart with you this morning. Yesterday's decision by the Supreme Court is surely one of the most significant rulings for the past two generations. I never believed I would live to see the day. Six weeks ago, I spoke to you about what I and many people considered to be America's besetting sin. The message is entitled, Dignity of Life, and you can download the podcast if you weren't here this morning, that morning, and I hope that you will. It was the week that somebody leaked the Supreme Court draft opinion regarding Roe v. Wade, which lit both a firestorm of outrage and a tangible hope that the national legal protection for the widespread practice of abortion on demand in America might come to an end. Through the years, this has been a very passionate issue for me, mostly because of the enormous amount of suffering that it has produced. The millions and millions of women that have had to face such a difficult decision and have suffered, many of whom still carry deep scars on their hearts. Because of the millions upon millions of tiny defenseless human beings who bear the image of God, whose lives were violently cut short. Because of the legacy of shame that it has produced in our nation and the rancor and the deep bitterness that has characterized the debate. I'm not going to speak on this issue again this morning, but I must offer my public thanks to the Lord Jesus this morning for the decision of the court yesterday. It certainly will not end. I mean, this is not the end of the matter. The suffering will not end. It will continue. The rancor will persist. There is much that has to be done to embrace the dignity of human life, which now moves to the state level. But I believe this decision to be a critical and necessary step in the right direction toward a culture of life in this country and away from the culture of death and shame in our nation. So, I'd like to ask you to pray with me, if you would. Lord Jesus, we really live in a fallen world, and the reason we do is because we're all fallen, and we don't all see this issue the same. Just because of this decision doesn't mean it's going to stop. We know that. But I want to thank you for the courage of the court yesterday, those men and women who are willing to make a hard decision, probably at the risk of their reputations and their lives among so many, to do what they believe was right. And we ask you to help us be the kind of people that would be winsome to the folk who are in need of this kind of help and not judgmental. Help us to be feeling and not arrogant. May we mediate the healing of Jesus in our broken world, even though we do it imperfectly, even though we don't understand it all. We want to be that. And so thank you for what you did yesterday. And please send your Holy Spirit to pour healing on our nation. 
There are so many people that are very angry and upset. We just ask that your Holy Spirit would, would help us as a people to come back together. I ask in your name. Amen. So now we switch gears and we'll consider the thing that I was working on yesterday when I heard this announcement. We've been working our way through the book of Luke in our Sabbath school class. The older I get, the more I am just loving the Gospels. The stories of Jesus, especially Luke, they are just wonderful. A few weeks back we came to this story, the one that Kathy just read in in Luke, Jesus calming the storm. It's a story about how faith works, really. So I decided we ought all have a look at it this morning. Only we're not going to use Luke's telling of it. We're going to use Mark's. One of the things that we do in our class, we compare stories that that happen in both or two two or three Gospels, and we try to figure out what the differences and the similarities are between them. This particular story is told by all three synoptic authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Mark's version is the longest, and that's unusual. Mark's accounts are usually the shortest. He's the one who normally leaves out lots of stuff that the other two include. But in this case, Mark's telling is the longest, and he organizes organizes it around four questions. The other writers have three. Mark has four. Uh, Four questions of faith that are asked in this story. So that's what we're going to... That's where we're going this morning, book of Mark. And two of these questions are posed by Jesus, and two are posed by his followers. All four of them have to do with faith. We're going to think about them as we go along, but we'll start with the overall context. Most scholars say that the book of Mark has a fairly simple outline. There are two parts, parts A and B. Part A deals with the question, who is Jesus? And part B deals with the question, why did he have to die? Most people think that the man who wrote the book of Mark, Mark, was a close friend of Peter. And so the biography of Jesus is most likely based on the stories he got from Peter. A few weeks ago, I showed you this book, King's Cross, Timothy Keller's excellent volume, um, on the book of Mark, it has stories of, from the book of Mark. My outline this morning is based in part upon what he has to say about this passage that we're going to think about. Someday, I'll, I'm going to share with you a whole series on the book of Mark, and we may use uh, part of Keller's material here as a syllabus when we do that. So, the early stories in Mark are organized to answer the question, who is Jesus? They are stories of teachings and healings and arguments he has with the religious leaders And Mark arranges them in such a way that each successive story ups the ante as to who Jesus is. And this story, the story of Jesus calming the storm, it raises the bar again. Previous stories have dealt with healing of palsied legs and restoring withered hands and appealing to hard hearts and even dealing with antagonizing critics. This time, he's alone with his own close followers and he deals with the most untamable force of all to show that he has power even over nature. That's significant, and we'll come to why that is in just a moment. And because this is a power over nature story, there are a lot of smart people in our day who are skeptical 
of, of it. They, they say this has got to be just part of the myth of Jesus, all right? They say because um, science explains everything. And a story like this is just clearly out of harmony with science, right? I mean, people follow the science today very objectively, don't they? Hmm? But what if God is bigger than science? What if God is not bounded by science? Those are fair questions to ask, at least, are they not? The modern assumption is that there is a God, that if there is a God at all, then he is bounded by science as we understand science to be. What if God is bigger? As one writer says, the modern embarrassment over miracles, because they are contrary to what we know about nature, assumes that we know everything about nature and everything about God when we actually know so very little about either. So let's get in the boat and see what happens. Mark 4, verses 35 to 38. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The first things to to notice here are that some of the details that Mark includes that Luke doesn't mention, and at first you might think, well, they're really not that significant. For instance, Mark says that they took Jesus along just as he was. What does that mean? The best guess is they didn't make any preparations to leave. They just left. Jesus had been teaching the crowds at the edge of the lake. Mark says the crowds were so huge that he got in a boat, pushed out a little from the shore. People all crowded onto, onto, around the shore to, to listen and to ask questions. And when evening came and it was time to leave, he didn't even get out of the boat to go back to his home in Capernaum to change clothes or even get any supper. He just left from where he was in the boat. So why does Mark add that detail anyway? Why do we need to know that? It doesn't help us to understand where the plot's going. You know what the point of the story is. Or the report about other boats being with him. It's just like he mentions it and then it just drops off the face of the, of the world. Why did he mention that? Or the fact that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. Matthew and Luke both say he was sleeping. But, the, but we need to know that for the plot of the story. What about, why, why the cushion? Well, the interesting thing is that these details are actually critical because they validate the veracity of the story. They are evidences that Mark is not just making this up like people say that he did. Here's why. A lot of research has been done over the past 25 years or so on how memory works. It's good that they're researching that because most of us are losing ours, right? But most of us think that the brain works, that the brain records memory kind of like a video camera records an event, exactly as it happened. But that's not the way it works. Our minds record things not only as objective facts, but also on the basis of emotional association. 
And even things like sense and smell have an effect on how we remember things. That's why two different people will often remember different details about the same event or even remember some of the details differently than the other person does. That's why sometimes two witnesses describing the same thing sound like they're telling two completely different stories. Here's what the researchers have found. One of the marks of a genuine eyewitness account is the presence of irrelevant detail. Of course, fictional stories contain detail too, but a fiction writer uses it to advance the plot, to enhance the storyline. Genuine eyewitness detail often doesn't. It's just irrelevant. Eyewitnesses record details simply because they remember them for some reason. It's a mark of authenticity. Now here's the thing. Modern writers add needless details and facts to their stories today because that's what we modern readers expect. And it seems to make their writing appear more real. But no ancient writers of fiction or epic tales or legends or, or myths ever incorporated any kind of detail into their writing unless it helped to move the plot along. Which means that people who think the Gospels are fiction are at a loss to explain verses like these, where Mark says there were other boats, and then he just drops it, or that Jesus was asleep on a cushion, because their standard assumption that the stories of Jesus are myths, that assumption just doesn't work. In other words, this really happened. It really did. It's for real. It's history. Mark is giving us first-hand reporting here. Jesus was actually in a boat. There was actually a storm. He was sleeping. And that means we're confronted with a choice. We can say, as many people do nowadays, that we really can't know who the real Jesus really was. It's just too hard to get the real facts that these must be legends and myths put forward by the church to advance its own agenda over the years. And in that case, we can believe anything we want to believe. We can create our own morality. We can live any way we want to live. The only problem is that the gospel accounts just don't fit that hypothesis. They are too genuine. They are too authentic. So the other choice that we have is to take Jesus as he is. And if we do, then the question becomes, who is he, really? Who is he? And then there's some allegiance issues to settle, right? And in this story, Jesus is the one with infinite power because he even rules nature. Verses 37 to 39. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Meteorologists say that the geography of this particular spot is perfect for producing squalls. The Sea of Galilee really isn't a sea at all. It's a big lake. Uh, for comparison, it's about eight times 
the size of Lake Crescent. Uh, so you can imagine that. But the interesting thing is the surface of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. In fact, it is the lowest freshwater lake anywhere on the planet. If you know anything at all about elevation, you know that, the low, that lower means hotter, okay? especially in arid climates. Think Death Valley, California, all right? Lower is hotter. 700 feet below sea level is pretty low. But that's not all. Just 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon, which rises to 10,000 feet, nearly. That's twice as high as Mount Olympus, for comparison. And just like Olympus, it's cold and snow-covered all year long. So, in the summer, there's a constant process of the cold air coming down the slopes of Mount Hermon on top of the hot, moisture-laden air rising up off the lake. And the result is some fairly spectacular weather. Big storms can come up really fast. And by the way, I did a little research, if you can call Google research, I did a little research on how much energy, how much power is released by an average thunderstorm. And I discovered that an average summer thunderstorm packs as much power as a 20 kiloton nuclear bomb. All right, that's the same size bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki to end World War II. That's the average thunderstorm. It said in that article that a large multi-cell thunderstorm can easily release up to 100 times that much energy. That was Encyclopedia Britannica on Google, by the way. That's a lot of power. That's a lot. The Bible says this was a particularly furious squall. That's one detail that does serve to advance the plot in the story. And it sweeps down off the mountain onto the lake, engulfing the boat. The skies get dark, lightning flashes, the temperature drops, the waves come up, and they are terrifyingly huge. In the boat are Jesus and his followers. And do you happen to remember what some of those followers, Andrew, Peter, James, John, and Philip, do you remember what they did for a living? They were fishermen, big, brawny, hardworking, hard-talking fishermen. Do you remember where they lived? Capernaum, yes, right there on the north shore of the lake. So they are in home territory here. They have fished here since they were little kids on their dad's boats. They know this water. They have been riding out storms here their whole life. Nothing really scares these guys. But all of a sudden, here they are, and they have never seen a storm come up so fast or strike with such force as this storm. And maybe that's because this isn't just some big squall, okay? Maybe this is, maybe it's a diabolical storm. The Greek word behind that term furious in the NIV, that is the word seismos, from which we get our word seismic, which means earth-shaking, all right? Some commentators say that maybe there is a satanic fury directed at this boat and its precious cargo. So the green water is coming over the bow way faster than they can bail. The sail is reefed. The wind is shrieking. The rain is driving horizontal. The situation is suddenly very, very critical. And maybe for the first time in their lives, 
Those big, strong, experienced fishermen believe that they are going to drown, that this is the end. They will die on that day. In his excellent book, The Perfect Storm, some of you probably remember the film, there was a book. Author Sebastian Junger describes, uh, he, he includes in that book, about the middle of the book, I can still remember this, a terrifying five-page description of the physiology of drowning. It is simply heart-stopping. Okay? It's been 20 years since I've read the book. Still today, this passage remains vivid in my memory. I have never been able to forget how he describes it, the horror of what it is like to drown. I made up my mind right then. I'll go any other way. I'm not going to drown. No, no way. And, but that's what's going to happen to these guys on the boat. It's filling up. It's no longer sailing. It's wallowing now. All is nearly lost. And meanwhile, where is Jesus? Why? He's asleep in the stern, curled up on a cushion. Hmm? Does anybody remember what Jesus did for a living? He was a builder. Yeah, that's right. He'd been a carpenter, not a sailor, not a fisherman. He didn't grow up on the water. He had no prior experience riding out nautical squalls. He's the one who should have been terrified. He is the landlubber, and he's not even helping to bail the boat. He's asleep. Why is that? Why is Jesus sleeping? Was it because he just had a really hard day teaching? A really stressful day, and he was just all tuckered out? Maybe. I mean, Jesus worked hard, right? His work was not easy. He often got tired. Or... Or maybe it was because he was very, very secure in his father's will for his life. So he could sleep right through the most terrifying squall. No fear. If you're secure in your father's will for your life, it tends to alleviate the panic in life. Does anybody here ever wake up at night worrying? Anybody? Not able to sleep because of some problem or maybe something that's coming down the road. Anyone? Happened to me twice last week. Evidently, it never happened with Jesus. So the boat is maybe minutes from going down. The waves are enormous. The disciples are toiling like wild men in their final desperate moments of life. Over the roar of the storm, they yell for Jesus, who has definitely not been doing his part to help out, okay? And they've got to be screaming. This is not a quiet little conversation. They yell at him. And here is the first question. It's a question of desperation, a faith question of desperation. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? We're drowning for God's sake. Don't you even care? Won't you help us? And of course, this is our question too. It's such a natural thing to wonder when the bad stuff happens to us. Does God even care? Why does he allow this stuff? Is he sleeping? Jesus awakes. Can you picture him there opening his eyes and seeing the fear in the eyes of his buddies? And then two absolutely astonishing things happen. 
First, he stands up in the boat and he talks to the storm. He doesn't get out his magic wand. He doesn't conjure up some incantation. He doesn't roll up his sleeves and brace himself and raise his hands and scream into the wind like Lieutenant Dan. Remember Lieutenant Dan screaming at the hurricane from the wheelhouse of the Jenny in Forrest Gump? Anybody? That's not what happens here. None of that. He simply speaks to the storm with full authority in his voice. Quiet. Be still. And that's it. And then, then, as if that storm were nothing more than a little misbehaving kid, the second astonishing thing happens. It obeys. Mark says the wind died down. The sea became completely calm. In other words, dead calm. Now, a skeptic might, might argue that the storm was nearly spent and was blowing itself out just as Jesus was standing up. Just a coincidence, because on Lake Galilee, wind squalls can dissipate almost as quickly as they can materialize, but not the water. Okay? Swells go on sometimes for days after the wind is gone. Not this time. The wind stops, the waves settle immediately, and it's dead calm, so calm you can see your reflection in the surface of the water. And now we'll skip a verse, but we'll come back to it in just a moment. We're going to skip a verse and go on to the second question of faith, again, spoken by the disciples. Verse 41, the disciples, they draw back in fear. Who is this? They ask each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's like a light bulb is going off in their minds. Because in ancient times, and I would argue that even still in our own day to some extent, people believed the sea was uncontrollable by anybody except for the gods. In ancient cultures and legends, the sea was a symbol of unstoppable destruction. Nobody could control it. And this is still the case today. How many of you have ever read some news account where the government is mobilizing assets to stop a big storm? Anybody? Nobody. People don't attempt to, to stop storms. They, they'll do that with other natural disasters, and sometimes they succeed. I mean, you think about forest fires, for example. It may be a huge fire. There may be hundreds of, of firefighters that go to battle against it. They'll drop water and chemicals from airplanes and helicopters, and they will fight it until it is finally out. But nobody ever fights thunderstorms or hurricanes or tornadoes. Nobody says, well, there's a big hurricane bearing down on the east coast of the United States, so we will deploy all our assets and put it out. <laughs> just get out of the way. You just hunker down because storms are untamable. And what is it that they call them anyway, especially the insurance underwriters? What do they call them? Acts of God. Yeah, because you can't stop them. I mean, not even in science fiction. They make thriller movies about guys who go up in spaceships and, and deflect asteroids from hitting the Earth, that kind of stuff. I don't think there's ever been a movie made about deflecting a hurricane. It just doesn't happen. They make movies about people who survive them or about Coast Guard heroes that go in and rescue people from them, you know. Ancient cultures believed that the ocean in full fury was only controllable by the gods. And if you've ever noticed, the Bible has a lot to say about the God whose dominion extends even over the water. All right? 
Think of the fourth commandment, for example, that says that God not only made the earth, he made the seas and everything in them. <laughs> it's a very significant claim, especially to the ancient mind. Okay? Or think about Job 38, where God responds to Job, and he says, where were you when I shut up the seas behind its doors? There's a claim, okay? When I fixed limits for it, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, this is where your proud waves halt. Only God can do something like that. Or the beautiful promise he makes in Isaiah 43, we've referenced that this morning, to those willing to trust God, he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And the Psalms are full of this kind of stuff, this, these dominion over the seas kind of claims. Psalm 107 is a good example. We have a hymn in our hymnal that is based on this psalm. It's known as the Navy Hymn, and sometimes they'll sing it at Navy funerals. The psalm talks about others who go down to the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep, for he spoke and stirred up the tempest that lifted high the waves. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were calmed. So only God can stop a storm. But now what has just happened? Jesus has stopped a storm. He has just exercised power that only God possesses, which is, of course, unlimited power. And remember now, Jesus has not conjured the power. He has not said, in the name of, be still. You know, Other miracle workers do that. They conjure other religious leaders do that, but Jesus never does that. He uses his own authority. Jesus is unique. Jesus, by his actions, is saying, I don't just have power, I am power. And anything and anyone in the whole universe that exercises power has it on loan from me. I am the source. That's a very bold claim. And that means we are faced with the very same question that the disciples faced. Who is this? And there are only a couple of options. You could argue that this world and everything in it is just the result of some monumental storm, some big bang, that we're all here by accident, the result of time and chance, and blind, violent, impersonal forces of nature. That's, that stuff is taught all over the place in every public school, that when you die, that's it. It's done. Eventually, the sun will go out. When it does, there won't be anyone left to remember anything you've done. So it really doesn't matter whether you've, you've been a cruel person or a kind person. Morality is just a human construct. So it really doesn't matter how you live. Or Jesus is who he said he is. And he has power over the storm. And therefore, he has power over our lives as well. And when we find ourselves pummeled by the storms of life, he has everything we need. So it really does matter how we live. It really does. And we have to choose which one of those two options we're going to go with. Now we'll go back and we'll look at the verses that we skipped. And these are the two middle questions of faith in Mark's stories, the one that Jesus asks. He said to his disciples, why were you so afraid? 
Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified, it says. While the storm rages, the disciples are afraid. I mean, they think they're, they're about to perish. After it turns calm, what happens? Well, they're thankful and at peace, right? Wrong. They are even more terrified. They are even more scared. It got worse. There are three Greek words behind that word terrified in the NIV. Phobemi, phobia, mega. Three words. Phobia means fear. You know that. Mega means what? Big, you know, like mega bucks, really big prize. Literally, the Bible says they feared a really huge fear. That's what it says. They're more scared after the calm than when the boat was going down. What's going on here? Remember what the question that the disciples asked Jesus was when they were sinking? They were panicked and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we drown? And the implication, of course, is that he doesn't. And who among us, if we are sincerely attempting to live a life of faith in a fallen world, hasn't felt this way at times? Everything seems to be going wrong and we can't figure it out. And worst of all, God, whom we trust, seems to be checked out. Or at least he's not answering. So this is a heart-wrenching question that they put to Jesus. It's as if they are saying, Jesus, you have gone to sleep on us in our time of greatest peril, when we need you the very most. How can you say you love us? I mean, if you really loved us, you'd wake up. You wouldn't let this thing be happening in the first place. So Jesus wakes up, and he calms the storm, and then he responds with these questions. We'll take them one at a time. First question, Jesus says, why were you so afraid? Hmm? Why? In other words, you should have known better, fellas. Your assumption is wrong. Actually, I do allow my people to go through storms. I do. Terrible storms even. But I still love them. So you had no reason to panic. So why were they even more terrified when it was all over? Well, maybe it's because another light is going on in their minds now. Jesus is even more un unmanageable than the storm. The storm had immense power. It was uncontrollable. Jesus has more power than that. He's even more uncontrollable. I can't manipulate him because he is God. Now, people will say you can't control the storm. You can't control God. Why well, follow him? He lets stuff happen that should never happen. He, things that don't even make any sense, he allows them to take place. And it's true, you really don't have any control over either one, the storms of life or God. But there is a huge difference. A storm doesn't love you. A storm is just blind physical force. Nature, contrary to what a lot of people think today, is not kind and gentle. There's, kind of, there's a kind of romantic view of nature that's popular among a lot of people today, especially among the elites, that nature is good and benevolent and wonderful, and life would be so much better for all of us if we could just get back to nature and be in harmony with nature. Mother nature, we call it, but the truth is mother nature is not like a mother at all. Nature is violent and overwhelming and powerful, and impersonal. And sooner or later, nature is going to get you. 
It will wear you out and eventually kill you. If not suddenly, then slowly. And all you need to do to understand what nature is going to do to you is to visit a nursing home. That's all you need to do. Jesus is more powerful than nature, but Jesus loves us. And that makes all the difference. Does God allow bad things to happen to us? Things we would never choose to have happen? Yes, he does. But he loves us. We may not know why he's letting us go through the storms because he's a little smarter than we are and he sees things with a little more clarity uh, than we do and from a little wider perspective, but he does love us. His power is unbounded, yet so is his wisdom and his love. Nature doesn't care if we live or die. Nature is cold, hard, and unfeeling, but Jesus is filled with untamable love for us. So here's the question. If the disciples had really known that Jesus loved them, would they have panicked? Would they have? Who knows? Maybe everybody in the boat would have been sleeping. And by the way, one of the lessons here is that Jesus doesn't keep bad things from happening to his people, but he does go through bad things with his people. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. People sometimes think that if they follow Jesus, he's going to protect them from the bad stuff. Well, sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't, for reasons that we may never know. But he never abandons us. He is with us in the trouble. And one of the reasons it's so important to keep this in mind is because there are many, many Christians who have been taught that somehow, at the very end of time, God is going to change this principle. That when things get really bad at the end, God is going to just take the ones who trust him out of all the trouble, out of the world, before that final storm breaks. But that is absolutely contrary to what Scripture teaches. It is a delusion. God does not keep his people out of storms. He journeys with his people through the storms. And he says in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will. The second question Jesus asks his men is this one. Do you still have no faith? In other words, don't you realize even yet who I am? Because if you did, you wouldn't panic. A better translation is actually, where is your faith? And this is the way Luke reports it, by the way, when you read his version, his telling of it. Where is your faith? Because the critical thing about faith in this story is not how much you have or how strong it is. The critical thing is the object of faith. Where is it focused? We tend to think that when we're facing big storms, we got to have a big faith. What Jesus is saying is, when you're facing big storms, what you need is a big God. How much faith you've got, eh, it's really not as important as who it's reaching for. The Bible never calls faith a virtue. It calls it a gift. Some people have lots of faith. Some people have just a little. What matters is not the, the quantity, it's the object. Imagine if you're falling off a cliff and just below the ledge is a little branch hanging down, but you don't know how strong the branch is. All you know is that you've got to reach out quick and grab a hold of the branch. How much faith do you have to have for that branch to save you? Hmm? Do you have to be totally sure that it can save you before you reach out and grab a hold of it? 
No. You only have to have the strength to grab a hold. What saves you is the strength of the branch. It really doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. What matters is the branch. And Jesus is the branch. Jesus is also the one who gives us faith. He is the author of it, the Bible says. It's not something that we have to muster up on our own. It's something he gives us. Little by little, he gives us evidences of who he is, and so we learn that we can trust him. And so when faith seems difficult, the very best thing you can do is just ask God for some of it, and he'll give it to you because he loves you. Now, there's one more thing that I'd like you to think about before we finish, and this is really kind of the heart of the thing, so please try to understand this. You might be thinking, you know, it all sounds so easy. Just trust Jesus. When the world crashes down all around, just trust Jesus and you can stay calm and serene. But you know it's pretty tough to actually live that way, right? So Mark has added one more thing to the telling of this story that can help us know when things go wrong, that God still loves us. Remember, Mark is concerned with two primary questions. Who is Jesus and what's the second one? Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? Mark drops hints of this second question all the way through his gospel, from the beginning all the way through the first half. The, the stories of, the, of the, uh, the, the part that tells the stories. And... Uh, the whole story that we have just read about the, the, the storm on the boat is one of those hints. The story itself is a hint of that second question. Here's what I mean. Mark has deliberately laid out this whole account using language that is parallel and sometimes identical to another famous story of a storm in the Old Testament. Anybody want to venture a guess of what that story might be? What do we know in the Old Testament? Who went through a big storm in the Old Testament? Jonah, that's right. Jonah was God's chosen spokesman near the end of the kingdom of Israel. And God gave him a special task to take his message, God's message, to the wicked city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah didn't want to go, remember? So he got on a boat and he tried to run away from God, tried to sail away from God. When you think about these two stories side by side, there are some very fascinating similarities. And here are some of them, all right? Both Jesus and Jonah got into a boat. Both Jesus and Jonah fell asleep as the boat sailed. Both boats were overtaken by an unusually severe storm. Both boats were battered to the point of sinking. In both stories, the crew, the sailors, are terrified that they are going to drown, and so they wake up the sleeper and they say, do something, we're going to drown. In both cases, there is divine intervention. The wind stops, the waves become uh, immediately calm, and in both stories, the sailors are more terrified after the storm becomes calm than they were when they were perishing when it was raging. Two very similar stories, one with, with one very significant difference. In the Jonah story, Jonah says to the sailors, there's only one thing that you can do if you want to get out of this alive. You've got to throw me in. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you live. 
and they threw him in. Remember? That doesn't happen in Mark's story. Or does it? Think about that. Mark writes from a perspective of 20 years after the fact. He looks at the whole life of Jesus to the very end. And from that perspective, these stories are not so different. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about Jonah. And do you remember what he said? He said, one greater than Jonah is now here. In other words, he likened himself to Jonah. He was saying, I am the true Jonah. A day is coming in which I will calm all storms. I will still all the waves. I will destroy destruction. I will kill death. I will do all that because I love you, but it will cost me. And it did cost him. Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm, the only storm that can sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing, of what we squander and lose when we buy the devil's lie. As the clouds gathered in Gethsemane and he faced the darkest moments of his life, when he needed his friends the most, when he begged them to watch and pray with him, what did they do? They fell asleep on him, they, and they deserted him, and they fled. But he loved them anyway, and their story is our story. Just as they did, we have let him down. But Jesus turned his prow, and he faced the onslaught willingly, head on, for our sakes, he didn't flinch, he didn't falter, he didn't waver. And on that cross, Jesus was demolished. The storm that was, that storm was not calmed until after he had been swept away. But because he died, we live. Because he perished, we survive. And to the degree that that truth becomes core in our hearts, we will know, no matter what happens to us, that he cares, that he loves us. We may not understand what's going on. It may be terribly difficult, but we will know that he cares and that we are deeply and completely loved by him, no matter what. He settled that at the cross once and for all. And we know that because he didn't abandon us in that ultimate storm, he will not turn away from us in all the other little storms that we have to face in our lives. Okay, let's sing as we finish today.